Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. After last week's look into Youngster as a possible suspect, it's now time to turn our focus onto his half-brother, Kenneth Wayne Driver. We're going to follow the same process with KD as we did with his brother. We'll break down a couple of statements that give us an idea of what KD was up to before he gave his statements to the police, and then we'll break down his full written statement. And after that, we'll take a look at his criminal record. This is Season 10, Episode 17, KD. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. A big part of what we're looking for in our investigation into Katie and Youngster is, number one, are they lying about the events of the morning of the murder? And number two, if they're lying, why? And where did they get the information for their false narratives? I pointed out last week that according to both Cena and Ruby Sullivan, right after Eva returned to the scene with Pam Wiley, she went up into her own apartment. Several minutes later, Katie and Youngster emerged from the apartment, proclaiming that everyone should have heard Catalina screaming. And then, sometime after that, Eva emerged from the apartment, asking out loud why anyone would want to hurt that sweet old lady downstairs. At this point, where we sit right now, I'm comfortable saying that if, and that's a big if, a false narrative about the screaming was hatched, that that process likely occurred in those few minutes following Eva's return to the apartment. But a closer and more detailed look at the series of events presents some pretty troubling conflicts, not for Katie and Youngster, but for Eva. The conflicts were first brought to my attention by listener Jessica Lynn Medley. She made a post on the fan page asking why Eva didn't mention to the apartment staff that there was someone inside of Catalina's apartment. In that simple, poignant question, Got my wheels turning. Why didn't she warn them? Let's check back through some of the statements to see exactly how all of this shook out. Because what's occurring to me is we're operating on so many assumptions based on the narrative we heard way back in episode one. 
But we're going to start now with Eva's very first oral interview, the first time she spoke to the police. In her first statement to police, Eva explained her reason for running for help as follows. Quote, A voice from inside the apartment responded to Eva, saying that I fell down and hit my head. Eva said that she knows the older woman's voice and knew that it wasn't her. In fact, she indicated that it sounded like a black person doing a poor impression of an elderly lady. Eva knew something was wrong, so she ran to the apartment manager's office and notified them of the problem. Now, keep track of the timing here as we move along. What I'm looking for here is when did the man's voice story first become a part of the narrative? This statement was given to police after Eva was alone in her apartment with Katie and Youngster, after Pam and Keith were on the scene, and even after she had time to sit and talk to Jennifer. And in this statement, she says that the reason that she went for help was because she knew that the voice inside was not Catalina's. She confirms this as the reason for going for help in her written statement taken later that same day. Quote, When I heard this, I realized that this voice was too deep, that it was not the voice of my neighbor. It was too deep and was raggedy, and it sounded like a black person trying to disguise their voice as an old woman. I took off running for the apartment office to get help for the woman. Just an aside here, but if we at some point find out that Eva was actually involved in the murder. I would bet a month's salary that if that is the case, and that's a big if, but if she's involved, that her accomplice was not black. And I say that because, and again, this is just working off of a hypothetical wherein Eva is involved, but she was so specific when she says the voice was deep and sounded like a black person. If she's lying about this entire event taking place, then there is a reason why she's telling the police that it was a black man inside. Getting back to our sequence of events, in both of Eva's police statements, both given after she had returned with Pam, and after she was in the apartment alone with Katie and Youngster, and after she was in the apartment with Jennifer, after all of that, she speaks to the police and she says, again, that the reason that she ran for help was because she knew someone was inside the apartment with Catalina. But what I want to know is what did she actually say to Pam Wiley when she ran for help? This is what Pam says in her first statement to police. Quote, Eva from apartment 58 came into the office. The young black female was screaming, call the police. The little old lady is dead. Not a word about an intruder, a man's voice, or any indication whatsoever that there could be someone inside the apartment. Now, let's look at Pam's written statement, taken a couple days later. Quote, Eva was yelling hysterically, something's wrong, I heard the lady screaming, come on. Missing from both of these statements is any mention of the fact that the supposed reason Eva was running for help to begin with was because she knew there was an intruder inside the apartment. But here, she only tells Pam that she heard the lady screaming. But if she didn't think there was someone dangerous inside, then why run for help at all? In her later statement, she says that the voice she heard was telling her, quote, I'm okay, I just fell and hit my head. And she tells Pam that that's the voice she heard, but then later tells the police that that was someone else's voice. 
hopefully the problem here is starting to become as clear to you as it is to me. And it gets worse. According to Cena and Ruby, as soon as Eva arrives back at the scene with Pam and Keith, she went into her apartment with Katie and Youngster, which means that she wasn't downstairs to know what they had discovered inside. All she knows is that there was some screaming inside. Based on what she told Pam in the office, at that point, she thought it was Catalina screaming. And again, there's no mention of an intruder or another voice. But when she emerges from the apartment, Eva is saying, quote, Why would anyone want to hurt that old lady? Why would anyone want to do that to the old lady? She would never hurt or bother anyone. But here's the problem. At that point, no one knew that anyone had hurt the old lady. Everyone still thought that she had just fallen and hurt herself. Check this out from Keith Truesdale's statement. Quote, Once the paramedics arrived and started attending to the elderly lady, I told them that I thought she'd fell and hit her head. But when they opened up her blouse, they found out that she had been stabbed also. Everyone on the scene was operating under the assumption that they were responding and attending to a woman who had fallen and hit her head. Not that they were responding to a woman who had been attacked with possibly an intruder inside. No one had any idea that she had been attacked until after the medics opened up her blouse and found the stab wounds. Also, the fact that EMS arrived on scene and went straight to the patient before police arrived again confirms that the call for help was not for an intruder or an attack in progress. If that were the case, then EMS would have to wait for PD to come and clear the scene before they could approach. But then we get even more confirmation of this with the combination of Keith Truesdale's statement in a police report documenting when police first arrived on the scene. So the whole thing went down something like this. We know that EMS pronounced Catalina dead at 9.15 a.m. There's no disputing that, even if you might want to. It's one of the few documented times that we actually have in the case file. And I think that most people don't realize that there were two, possibly three 911 calls that morning. First, someone in the office, I think, called 911 when Eva ran to the office. And I say I think because it's implied, but it's never really confirmed. And we don't have any interviews with the rest of the office staff. So Eva runs into the office. She tells them the old lady's hurt. She needs help. Pam tells someone in the office to call 911. And then she and Lavana go running out towards the apartment. Once they get there, Lavana goes back to the parking lot. She finds Keith, tells Keith to go back to the unit. Then, after Keith gets the door unlocked and lets Pam in, they look around for a phone. And Keith finally finds one, and he calls 911 and reports that they have an unconscious woman in the apartment. For clarity's sake, this was dispatched as a medical call only. No police were dispatched at that time. No one had any idea that a crime had been committed. Well, no one but Eva, apparently. Truesdale says that he still believed that Catalina had just fallen and hit her head until the medics opened her blouse and he saw the stab wounds. Now, you might think that things happen like they do on TV. The medics open the shirt, see the injuries to the chest, and immediately radio dispatch to send police. But that's not how things actually work in the real world. And most certainly not that way in 1996, when EMS didn't even carry portable radios for the most part. The reality is that the wounds to the chest were very shallow flesh wounds. And they were in that weird straight line. 
likely they weren't recognized as stab wounds right away. There was broken ceramic everywhere. So the wounds on the chest could have just been part of the fall. But in any case, we know that EMS did not recognize the incident as a crime scene right away because they didn't notify the police until 27 minutes after they pronounced Catalina dead. In Truesdale's statement, it says that at some point, one of the paramedics told him that he needs to call the police, quote, since this looks like a murder. Keith then dials 911 again. This now is at least the second call. It's definitely the second call that he made and possibly the third call to 911. He then hands the phone to the medic who advises dispatch to send the police. And we know exactly when this call occurred because, like I said, it's actually documented in the police file. Officer Peekert was the first officer to arrive on the scene. He was dispatched at 9.55 to a DOA, or dead on arrival. The report says that that call came into dispatch at 9.42 a.m. Again, 27 minutes after Catalina was pronounced dead. So, what does this all mean? It means that Eva ran to the office, told Pam that Catalina needs help because she heard her screaming. She runs back to the scene with Pam and then goes right up into her apartment. And then she emerges saying, why would anyone want to hurt that old lady before anyone knew that someone had in fact hurt the old lady? Listen, I know it may seem to some of you like I have blinders on or that I'm only focused on Eva, but I assure you that is not the case. It just so happens that everywhere I look lately seems to end up pointing us right back in that direction. I'm going to leave that alone for right now, and we're going to focus on KD. But Eva's sequence of events is important to that investigation as well. In trying to figure out what KD was doing that morning, it's important for us to figure out if the screaming voice portion of his statement actually happened. And my opinion as of now is that it did not. Now, you're all well aware that I already believe that due to all the conflicting statements, and now I'm even more convinced after tracking Eva's movements and behaviors, and also tracking the movements and actions of all of the people that Eva spoke to that morning. No one was responding to an intruder. She didn't warn anybody there was an intruder. She didn't suggest that there was an intruder. That story was not hatched until later when she talked to the police. It seems to me that Eva ran to get help then went into the apartment with Katie and Youngster, and that's when the story started to change. But let's see what Katie had to say to the police in his written statement. Kenneth Wayne Driver, as we know him as Katie, was born on September 23, 1979, which means that he was 17 years old on the day of the murder. This is the written statement that he gave to Detective Swainson the next day. And just like Jennifer's statement, KD did not actually write this. Detective Swainson typed it out, and KD signed it. We also have no recording or notes of the interview, only this finished product. Quote, My name is Kenneth Wayne Driver. I am a black male, and I am 17 years old. I have attained 11 years of formal education. I am unemployed at this time. My brother, Pharrell Smith, known as Youngster, called me up at my house and said he was going to pick me up. 
We are half-brothers and don't live together, but we hang out together sometimes. He came by and picked me up around 5 p.m. on Monday, October 28, 1996. He picked me up in a white Nissan Ultra with some of his guys. We drove around for some time just blowing some weed. We ended up back on his side of town around 7 p.m. Later that evening, Youngster drove me and one of his homeboys to the apartments on Sabo Street. When we went there to chill, meaning we were there to blow and hang out with the girls, one of the girls at the apartment is Youngster's gal, and I know her as Jen. When we got to the apartment, there was just me, Eva, Jen, my brother Youngster, and the other homeboy. When we got there, Monday Night Football was on. I believe it was the second quarter of the Minnesota vs. Chicago Bears game. We chilled for a while, and then the homeboy left. Now I'm just going to stop right there for a minute and point out how freaking weird this homeboy situation is. First of all, Eva, Jennifer, and Youngster say that it was only Youngster and KD that came over that night. No homeboy. And secondly, how do we never get a name for the homeboy? Not even a, I don't know homeboy's name. Nothing. It's just strange. But anyway, back to the statement. We walked out of the apartment and then left for the store. We picked up a blunt cigar and came back and blew upstairs. We stayed up for a while and then the homeboy left again for good. Eva went to sleep on the couch and I was in the bedroom with Jen and Youngster. We were talking stupid stuff and then we all fell asleep. The next morning I was sleeping on the bedroom floor. Youngster was laying in the bed and Eva was, I guess, out in the living room. I never saw Jen leave the apartment, but she's not in the apartment. I woke up that morning to the sound of a woman screaming for help over and over. It sounded like the voice was coming from outside our apartment. I laid there a few minutes, kind of falling asleep in between the screams. I hear the front door open. I then heard Eva yell out, what's wrong? It sounded like she was outside headed down the stairs. Youngster jumps out of bed and steps over me. I get up immediately and I'm walking behind him towards the front door of the apartment. I'm only a step or two behind him. We go out the front door and are heading down the steps. Eva's already at the bottom of the steps looking towards the downstairs apartment patio area. When I get to the bottom of the steps, I can see that the patio screen door is bent in and part of the screen is torn. The sliding glass door is open. Eva is yelling into the apartment, is everybody okay? The person inside says that everything's fine, you can go back upstairs. The voice was impersonating an old lady's voice. Eva then told me and Youngster to go back upstairs. She was worried that the apartment manager would find all this traffic going into her apartment. But just before we went back up the stairs, I heard the same voice from inside the apartment say, Let go of me. Let me go, Mike. I'm not sure what the male name was used, but I think it was Mike. When we first exited the apartment and went downstairs, I never saw Jen around. I only saw Eva and Youngster. No one else was around the area. Youngster and I went back upstairs for a few minutes. We didn't want Eva to get in trouble. While we were in the apartment, it was real quiet downstairs. We were still pretty curious, so we left the apartment again. Youngster was walking behind me, and this time I saw Jen come around the corner from the east. She was just walking down the sidewalk very calmly. Eva was standing there, and I saw a Mexican maintenance man jump over the fence into the patio. Jen was coming around along the sidewalk, and now she was saying we need to call for an ambulance. We were walking up the stairs of the apartment, and we told her that somebody already did. So we went up to the apartment and sat there for a few minutes. Youngster and Jen walked into the bedroom and talked a few minutes between themselves. I think Youngster is asking her where did she go, but I can't really hear the conversation. While we were in the apartment, we then heard the sounds of the approaching ambulance. We all then walked out of the apartment and walked down the steps. When we got to the bottom of the steps, we saw lots of people arriving. There was a lot of commotion, so we just flipped. 
So me, Youngster, and Jen leave the area and go to Janet's apartment. I don't know the number of the apartment, but it's up front near the street. We told Janet what was going on, so she left to find out what. We stayed in the apartment for another 20 minutes or so before we went back over to Eva's. When we got there, somebody said that the woman was dead and stabbed six times. We stayed around for a while before we decided to just flip, leave, and then we picked up a blunt and went to Barbizon. I do not know who killed the woman. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Okay, so this timeline is even more confusing than youngsters. What I'm going to do now is narrow in on the window of opportunity for the murder and the moments following. Obviously, we know we have a major conflict with Homeboy, but I want to see how Katie and Youngster's timelines compare to each other on the morning of the murder. I'm going to try to limit confusion, so I'm going to leave Eva's timeline out of it for the most part. I think we're all pretty familiar with her version of events. Of note here, of course, is the fact that she says Katie was asleep in the living room with her and that Youngster came out of the bedroom and woke her up to go tell her about the screaming. But how do Katie and Youngster's versions line up? Where are they the same, and where do they diverge? Both brothers say that on the night before, they were both sleeping in the bedroom along with Jennifer. Both agree that Jennifer and Youngster are in the bed, and Katie is on the floor. Jennifer also confirms this. They both say that Eva was sleeping in the living room. Katie and Youngster both say that they were awakened by the sound of someone screaming. Both say that when they woke up, they were the only two in the room. Jennifer was gone. Katie says that while he was laying on the floor in the bedroom, he heard the front door open and heard Eva yell out, what's wrong? At this point, both of them say that Youngster jumps out of bed and steps over Katie, who is again on the floor. Youngster says that he sees Eva at the front door as he walks out of the bedroom and she's headed down the stairs. He follows. Katie confirms this and says that he followed behind his brother. Now to this point, everything is tracking. I mean, point for point for point, Katie and Youngster are telling almost identical stories until they go outside. So in Youngster's version, he says that when they step outside, Jennifer, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby Sullivan are all standing there. But Katie says when they step outside, no one's around. It's just him, his brother, and Eva. Youngster says that Jennifer tells Red Rock to call 911, but Red Rock's not even there in KD's statement. Neither is Jennifer, for that matter. Youngster says that Eva is calling into the apartment over and over, and no one is answering. 
At that point, Eva says she's going to the manager's office, and then Jen just walks away. But then after Jennifer leaves, Eva starts yelling into the apartment again, and this is when the man's voice calls out from inside saying, I'm okay, I just fell down. In KD's version, Eva yells into the apartment, is everyone okay? And a voice from inside says, quote, everything is fine, you can go back upstairs. Adding to that, in Eva's version, the voice says, quote, I just fell and hit my head. Now, it may seem like I'm splitting hairs here, but I think it's significant that all three supposed witnesses of this event all say that the voice said something different. We have, I'm okay, I just fell down. We have, everything is fine, you can go back upstairs. And we have, I just fell and hit my head. And then KD adds that he also heard the voice say, let me go, Mike. Neither of the other two recall that happening. Youngster says that after Eva hears the voice, she runs off to the office, leaving him, KD, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby standing outside. According to Pam Wiley, none of these people, including KD and Youngster, were outside when she arrived at the scene with Eva. But Youngster says that they were all outside when Eva returned with five people from the office, and according to him, it's upon her return that Eva tells him and KD to go back upstairs. But in KD's version, Eva tells the boys to go back upstairs before she ran off to the manager's office. And then KD says they were upstairs for a few minutes. It was quiet, so they came back out. And at this point, Eva is now standing there, and he sees a Mexican maintenance man, Keith's a white guy, by the way, jump the fence. And he also says he sees Jennifer calmly walking towards the scene on the sidewalk from the east. And from here, things get even more squirrely. Youngster says that Janet came out to the scene. KD says they walked to Janet's with Jen and told Janet what happened, and then Janet walked back to the scene herself, and the list goes on and on and on. But the bottom line here is that their stories about that morning match up perfectly until the part where they walk outside with Eva. Then everything goes haywire. So here's my opinion and my hypothesis based on what we know. We'll test this against the evidence and the follow-up with any input you listeners may have. So first, my opinion. I 100% absolutely in no way believe that there was ever a fake voice coming from inside that apartment. was already leaning that way, but when we really look at these details and add in the fact that no one, except Eva, knew this was a homicide until after the medics had been on scene for a half hour, and now I'm certain that this part of the story is completely made up. And now, my hypothesis. I think the boys were asleep in the bedroom. They heard some commotion from below, perhaps even some screaming, who knows. But then they heard Eva come in the door. I don't think Eva realized that the boys were in the back bedroom still. The last she had heard from them was the night before, when Youngster told her that he was waiting for a ride. She comes in the door, and she's surprised to see them. So she says she's going to go check on the lady, and she tells them to stay inside so she doesn't get in trouble. The boys then start looking out the window to see what's going on. They see Jennifer walk up from the east. They see her talking to Red Rock. They see Truesdale jump the fence, but the angle is bad. KD thinks it was a Mexican guy that jumped the fence, and Youngster saw two people jump the fence. He thinks that it was two maintenance men, but it was actually Truesdale, and I think, in my hypothesis, 
that it was Jennifer following behind him. Then Eva runs up into the apartment, and this is when she tells them that they need to say that they heard the screaming. The fake voice narrative hadn't even been hatched yet at this point. Right now, she just tells them to say that they heard screaming, and that's why she went out to help. She tells them they need to get out of the area so she doesn't get in trouble. So the boys walk out of the apartment and go on and on to anyone who will listen that they heard the screaming, and everyone should hear the screaming. They even walk over to the twins and tell them about the screaming, and then they leave the area. During this time, Eva's got a few minutes in the apartment by herself. And then Eva finally comes out, and she's not realizing at this point that everyone else still thinks this was an accident. You see, she knows what happened inside, and she's assuming when they walk inside, they're going to know too. So she walks out and starts saying, why would anyone want to hurt this old lady? Even though no one knew the old lady had been hurt by anyone other than an accidental fall. A few minutes later, Jennifer joins her on the steps. And the two at some point go back into Eva's apartment. And this is when the fake voice story is created. So Eva and Jen both tell their versions of the fake voice story to the police. And then later that evening, Youngster and Katie go back to Eva's. And while they're there, she tells them the fake voice story and tells them if they end up talking to the police, make sure they tell that story. And then the next day, Katie and Youngster go in to give their statements and they completely blow it. They know they're supposed to tell the fake boy story, but they were completely caught off guard when the cops just showed up at Youngster's house. They didn't have a time to get their story straight. So even though they're interviewed in separate rooms, they're able to get through the true portion without any conflicts. That's easy, because they're just recalling what actually happened, where they were sleeping, how they woke up, so on and so forth. And then the stories fall apart. But luckily for them, Detective Allen already had his sights set on Jennifer and he could have cared less about their conflicting statements. Now, all of that is just my current working hypothesis after breaking down all of these statements. Personally, based on what we know from the scene, I don't see a scenario where Katie and Youngster are involved in the murder. But that's not all the evidence. We still need to take a look at KD's post-defense behavior. Much like Youngster, he has an extensive criminal record. KD's first run-in with the law came on May 29, 1997. He was arrested for unauthorized use of a vehicle. There's no charging doc online for this arrest, but it looks like he was sentenced to deferred adjudication, and then the probation was revoked two months later, and then he was sentenced to a year in state jail. His next two charges came on the same day, and it looks like they may be the reason that he was sent to jail from the previous charge. On August 14th of 97, Katie was charged with two misdemeanors, resisting arrest or search and evading detention. And again, there's no further information on either of those charges. And Katie's next charge came three years later. He was charged with evading detention again on October 4th, 2000. He got 60 days in jail for that one. And then on June 2nd of 2001, he was charged with a misdemeanor theft between $50 and $500. And again, no details, but we know he was sentenced to 30 days in the county jail. Two years later, on February 6, 2003, he's picked up for a misdemeanor possession of marijuana. What's interesting about that charge is that the charge says he had two to four ounces of marijuana on him which got my attention because that's a lot of weed. 
I was thinking that he must be dealing. No one just walks around with two ounces of pot in their pocket. But in the case file, years later, there's an order to destroy the evidence that was seized in this case. And what was destroyed was 3.4 grams of marijuana, which is an eighth of an ounce, which is a pretty reasonable amount to be carrying. So either the charge was incorrect, or there was some sort of super trooper situation going on at the station. Katie's next charge came four years later. It's another misdemeanor. On June 25th, 2007, he was charged with trespassing. This one has a charging document, and this is what it says. Kenneth Wayne Driver hereafter styled the defendant, heretofore on or about June 25th, 2007, did then and there unlawfully, with notice that entry was forbidden, intentionally and knowingly enter and remain in the habitation of another, namely Amanda Campbell, without the effective consent of Amanda Campbell. So, from what I'm picking up, it seems like Katie and this Amanda Campbell maybe went through a nasty breakup. The charging instrument says that he was told that he was not allowed in her house, then he showed up anyway. Then, a month later, he's charged with violating a restraining order that she filed against him. And that charging docket says that he directly communicated with her in a threatening and harassing manner. And so, at this point, KD is 27 years old. It's been over 10 years since Catalina's murder. And we've yet to see any indications of violent behaviors. But it does seem as though he's beginning to devolve. And from here, things only get worse. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A year after the restraining order and trespassing, Katie is popped with possession of cocaine this time. He had less than a gram on him, but that's enough to be charged as a felony. And then we start to see some violence. On April 28, 2009, he's charged with a misdemeanor assaulting a family member. This is what the charging doc says happened. Quote, Kenneth Wayne Driver, hereafter styled the defendant, heretofore on or about April 26, 2009, did then and there unlawfully, intentionally, and knowingly cause bodily injury to Lucia Cantu a person with whom the defendant had a dating relationship, hereafter styled the complainant by pushing the complainant with his hand, causing her to strike a closet rod with her back. So now he's in a new relationship, and he shoves his girlfriend, causing her to hit her back on a closet rod. And a year later, he's at it again. On June 15, 2010 now, KD was arrested for another assaulting a family member charge. And this was a lot more than just a shove. This is from the charging document. Quote, Affiant has interviewed the complainant Lucia Cantu, who is a credible and reliable person. The complainant told Affiant that she knows the defendant by name and sight as her boyfriend and father of one of her children. She also stated that she was arguing with the defendant on June 8, 2010. Defendant was trying to tell complainant what to do. The defendant became angry when complainant refused, and he slammed her head into the wall, causing pain. Complainant attempted to defend herself, but the defendant then grabbed her by her neck using his right hand and held her against the wall. 
Defendant choked complainant and she could not breathe for a couple of seconds. Complainant got away from defendant and she grabbed a screwdriver to try to defend herself. The defendant took it away from her and then she grabbed a belt. The defendant took the belt away from her. The defendant struck the complainant with the belt on her left thigh and left arm causing pain and bruising. Defendant did not stop hitting the complainant until a witness told him to stop and leave because she was calling the police. This was the mother of Katie's child. He spent 121 days in jail awaiting a sentence. He ultimately pled guilty and received a one-year sentence in county jail, minus the time served on April 7, 2011. And then, on October 9th that same year, Katie is out of jail, and he goes right back after Lucia, the mother of his son. Here's the charging document from that arrest, and this is very disturbing. Quote, In the course of the investigation, Affian spoke to Lucia Maria Cantu, hereafter the complainant, whom Affian found to be a reliable and credible person regarding this incident. The complainant told the Affian that on October 9, 2011, at approximately 11.13 p.m., while at her friend's residence, the defendant, who she knows by name and sight, ex-common-law husband and father of her son, as Kenneth Wayne Driver, came banging at the front door of the apartment where she is currently living. Complaint advised that the defendant does not have any property in the apartment and he has no right to access it. The complaint advised that she would not open the door for the defendant and he became more agitated. The complainant stated the defendant then picked up a brick from outside and began to strike the front window with the brick. The complainant stated the defendant broke the front window and forced his way into the apartment. The complainant stated that she ran up the stairs to grab their son and the defendant ran after her. The complainant stated the defendant grabbed their son and began to forcefully punch the complainant in the head with a closed fist causing her pain and injury. The complainant stated the defendant then forcefully pushed her to the ground and began to kick her on her upper body, causing pain. The complainant stated that the defendant heard the police and fled the location with their son before the police arrived. End quote. This case gets confusing. Because in June the next year, 2012, the case is dismissed. Which, I mean, he should be in prison for like a long time for this. But the reason for the dismissal that's handwritten on the form says, quote, subject to refile if, and it looks like it says car located. I'm assuming it must be suspect located, but that's what it says. It says the case is dismissed and it's subject to refile if something is located. I'm not sure exactly what is written, but Katie does have an evading arrest charge on May 18th of 2012. It says that he fled from officers as they were attempting to arrest him. So I'm thinking that's why the previous charges were dismissed because they couldn't find him. It still seems odd that they dismissed them for that. Three years later, Katie surfaces again, when he's arrested for, quote, striking his girlfriend, Erica Bowie, with his hand. And after that, on July 25th, 2016, he beats up Erica again and is arrested again. This one he pleads down to a misdemeanor. So this is now his third time being arrested for assaulting a family member, and he's not done. Two years later, on April 17th, 2018, he's arrested again for assaulting a family member. And this case gets a little tricky to piece together, because while he's being questioned, K2 
Katie confesses to murder. Way back in 2011, a month after the incident where Katie broke into his ex's house and beat her up and took his son, on November 15th, according to the charging document, Katie shook and beat a two-month-old child named Jamarian Wayne Anthony to death. The investigative charging affidavit explains what happened in detail. In November of 2011, KD was dating a woman named Jessica Anthony. Jamarian was Jessica's son. She says that on the evening of the 14th of November, KD came to the house. She was tired and asked KD to tend to Jamarian so she could get some sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, she noticed that the baby had been placed in bed with her. Then in the morning, she was awakened by KD, who was telling her that the baby was cold and blue. Over the years, KD and Jessica were interviewed several times. Both insisted that Jamarian did not sustain any injuries while in their care. But in 2018, when Katie was in the county jail for another crime, his own sister came forward to Jessica and told her that KD had been feeling guilty and told her that he was high on the night Jamarian died and that he dropped him several times. Jessica then calls the police and they go down to the county jail and interview KD. KD confesses in the interview that he was high that night and Jamarian woke him up crying. He says that he picked up the baby, and while carrying him into the kitchen to get a bottle, he bumped Jamarian's head on the stove, then he dropped him on the floor. Essentially, he admits to being responsible for Jamarian's death, but says that it was an accident. Jamarian's autopsy revealed that his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. KD was charged with murder, and he sat in the Harris County Jail for nearly three years awaiting a trial. His trial was scheduled for April 5th of this year, but a few days before that, KD took a plea deal. He pled guilty to murder in exchange for a 15-year sentence. He was facing life, so with good behavior, it's possible that KD could be free again in seven and a half years. And that's KD. Much like Youngster, he spent the first 10 years of his adult life committing petty crimes, and then he transformed into an absolute monster. I have no way of knowing if he actually intentionally murdered Jamarian. There is a possibility that this was actually an accident, if getting so high that you kill a baby can even be considered an accident. I don't think it can be. But what I do know is that he threatened, abused, and beat multiple women in the last 10 years. And in my opinion, he should have been locked up for much longer before this murder ever even occurred. That is a failure of our system. The fact that this man was left out on the streets and that resulted in the death of a two-month-old. And now, I'm very curious about your thoughts. In part one of this episode, we examined what happened on the crime scene. Now, in part two, we find out the monster that KD became years later. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about KD, and if you believe that he could have been involved in Catalina's murder. And once again, I want to invite you to leave me some voicemails for the follow-up at 269-224-2833. And make sure you also write in with your questions, thoughts, and theories. We'll chat again 
on Friday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.